Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. You can use swan.com or the Swan Bitcoin app for safe and easy Bitcoin buys. Now, Swan offers recurring purchase plans and you can also do one-time buys, also known as smash buys. Swan also offers free custody in your own legally owned trust account. And of course, not your keys, not your coins. Swan offers free automated withdrawals to self-custody. So you can set up either a single address or go in there and have it set up so that you have multiple addresses in there. So you can regularly stack Bitcoin and receive it into your own self-custody. And if you're a high net worth investor, consider Swan Private, a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey with a dedicated Bitcoin expert, exclusive events, support for retirement, trust and corporate accounts, and original Bitcoin and investment research. So to sign up, go to swan.com slash Levera and you'll get $10 of Bitcoin dropped into your account when you start stacking with Swan. Build on L2 is the community for Bitcoin builders by Blockstream. This is a community-led effort and initiative by contributors and companies building on Core Lightning and the Liquid Network. It's an interactive community platform where you can chat with other people, whether they are builders, product managers, designers, engineers, and there are some events and presentations, as well as a mentorship program to help fast track your success to give you that guidance, and also a community space where you can learn alongside other Bitcoiners. Go and sign up. You can get access over at buildonl2.com. Now, when it comes to securing your Bitcoin, you need Bitcoin hardware and coinkites.com make it easy for you. They have a range of products. They have things like the tap signer, which is an NFC card that you can use with your phone or with your desktop if you have an NFC reader. And that's a relatively cheap device. Now, if you want the MK4, that's the big device that you can use as part of single signature, you can use it as part of multi-signature. It has a screen, it has all kinds of security features that make it easy for you to help secure your coins for the long haul. And of course, they recently announced the Q1, which is available for pre-order. So if you want to get yours, go to coincard.com. And if you're ordering a cold card, use code Levera for a discount there. So for today's show, longtime Bitcoin and Lightning developer Matt Corallo rejoins me on the show. He's with Spiral Bitcoin working on LDK and Rust Lightning. But today we chat about a bunch of things especially what Bitcoin specializes in. Bitcoin as contrasted with stablecoins or NFTs or digital collectibles and art. Bitcoin's future problems versus today problems and cultural aspects, what it takes to have a Bitcoin soft fork, as well as chatting about LDK, of course. On to the show with Matt. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, lots of things going on. Um, you know, I know there's always some topic of the day or whatever that, you know, that's happening, whether it's, you know, ordinals and inscriptions, which is the latest kind of craze. Maybe the mempool is uh, clearing out a little bit now. But uh, yeah, I thought, I thought it'd be good to chat with you again. I know nowadays you're, you're kind of more focused on to lightning. What would you say your main focus is nowadays with Bitcoin and uh, related uh, stuff? Yeah, um, yeah, my day job's obviously Lightning, uh, so I work more than full time on the LDK project, the Lightning Dev Kit project. Um, just tons to do. To you know, we have a lot of people now building exciting apps using LDK. Um, you know, it took a little bit to, to kind of clean up the code base and make it easier to work with, uh, but we now have a bunch of people in flight, and so there's just a lot of work to to clean up stuff, add features for user, for people who want to develop with LDK, um, and all kinds of, of way too much work to do there. But, you know, still spend a lot of time just being in the Bitcoin community and 
uh, opining on everything, I guess, just not on Twitter these days because it's a waste of time. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I guess zooming out and looking at the broader aspect of what's going on with Bitcoin, I think even with this recent ordinals and inscriptions thing, I think it sort of brought up this whole question of what is what should Bitcoin be used for, right? And it kind of, I guess, it sort of reopened certain debates like the op return wars and, you know, this this notion of should you have arbitrary storage of data on the blockchain? And we're sort of seeing, I think, people are reasoning about, well, what, what does the future of it look like? For example, James O'Byrne has this idea of op vault and we're seeing maybe a bit more discussion about this idea of covenants. I know that's something you have you know, previously been pretty interested in, maybe you're, you're still interested in. Do you see anything fundamentally shifting about Bitcoin's utility or what it means? Like, what's the, the, the goal of the project? Or do you see it more like it's already pretty well defined now? Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of places to go with that question. <laughs> in, in terms of the direct question, no. I think, you know, Bitcoin remains focused. Even a lot of people excited about ordinals still are like, oh, we can like do this thing on the side, but Bitcoin is still focused on being a money, right? On building, how do we build the best money we can build that has certain properties, has, you know, these properties of, of not having to ultimately seeking to not have to trust anyone, right? And, and I think that's, that's clearly still the focus for all Bitcoiners. And, and, you know, it, it is what sets Bitcoin apart. You know, you have all this other stuff going on in crypto land, right? Where you've got NFTs, you've got all this, you know, stablecoin excitement, DeFi, whatever. And none of that, you know, is in any way competitive. None of it's really seeking to do the similar kind of trustless money that Bitcoin is focused on. So I don't think it's changed anything from that perspective, but you know, I, I think the broader space, because there is so much else going on, you know, people get confused and start to, let me rephrase. I think the, the space has grown up in the sense that I think the broader crypto space has kind of started to recognize this separation of what is valuable and, and how these things, what the goals are of different projects, whether it's, you know, Ethereum and Solana and, and whatever, uh, versus Bitcoin versus stable coins. And it's, it's taken till kind of this bear market before people really recognized, you know, I feel like in the last few months, kind of the broader crypto people are finally coming back around to Bitcoin. There's a lot more excitement in Bitcoin. And I feel like it's kind of, a healthy Bitcoin, people talking about what Bitcoin is actually for, right? It's not like, oh, we're excited about Bitcoin because we can invest in Bitcoin and like buy more Bitcoin and Bitcoin's pumping. Yay. Let's like whatever. It's like, oh no, Bitcoin is just different from all of these other systems that we've been building. But as for the ordinals question, I'm excited block space is getting used. Like Bitcoin, it is. It is not just the case that, like, you know, Bitcoin only survives if people use Bitcoin, if there is demand for censorship-resistant transactions. And not just in the sense that, that like, well, you know, Bitcoin's only useful if people use Bitcoin. Well, like, obviously, okay, duh. But also, Bitcoin fundamentally does not work if there's not demand for block space. Like, w once the subsidy goes away, there has to be a way to pay miners for security. Like, the security budget has to come from somewhere, and... As long as there's only 21 million Bitcoin, that means it has to come from, it has to come from transaction fees. It has to come from people actually having demand for 
on-chain transaction space. And, you know, if we don't, if there's not enough demand from people doing actual transactions, then great, shove data on there. I don't care. Like, somebody's got to pay for miners somehow, and there's got to be a security budget from somewhere. I'm curious your thought on this, because I've seen people... Other Bitcoiners come back at this idea in a different way. So, for example, some try to almost reject the notion of security budget and they sort of present this idea, oh, it's validity, not security. And that, you know, it's the transactor who should be caring about whether their transaction gets mined, right? And so, I'm curious your thought there. Uh, and I know there are different arguments in, in and out here. So, one other example I've heard is this idea of fee sniping. So, this idea that, okay, imagine we're in that future hypothetical, right? Imagine let's, you know, it's 2023 now, but let's fast forward to 2036 or 2040. Let's say the block subsidy is a lot smaller right now. I guess the, the hypothetical concern is that, okay, if there's like a fee sniping incentive, let's say there's not a lot of fees in, in the blocks, but there's like one big transaction and all the miners keep trying to reorg to get that. Is that the main concern you're seeing from like a, if, if there's not enough transactions going on or, or are there other concerns? Yeah, I think that's the big concern that, that if there's not enough, and, and there are other things we can do about it. There are other things we should do about it. So one thing we really should do is we should do, I mean, I guess there's different terms for it, but uh, transaction fee smoothing, right? So like if you, uh, if you're a miner and you mine block with a high transaction, with high total transaction fees, you shouldn't get all of that. You should get some, some part of it and then the rest of it should kind of pay out to, to blocks later down the line. Um, I think a lot of the kind of game theory, analysis folks have done of the fee sniping problem where you know miners are trying like oh there's that juicy transaction fee in that block let me try to like reorg it out to get it a lot of the game theory analysis people have done is concluded that basically you do that anyway right if you are a miner and you mine that juicy transaction fee you're just gonna go ahead and pay it pay part of it to the next miner to try to encourage them to let you have it so that uh they're not all trying to reargue. so like we should just do that we should make that a consensus rule, you know, just flatten out the fee reward. Um, so there's some things we can do to improve it, but nothing completely removes the problem. There, you know, there's always, uh, if, if the mempool clears out, well, there's no fees to smooth, you know, you're, you're still going to want to like reorg back a block, whatever. So there's no complete solution. We can make it a, a smaller concern, but we have to have, there has to be demand. Ultimately, there has to be demand for block space that there just, there is no other solution than that. So yeah, I mean, I, yeah. All, yeah. So, you know, to your point, there's all kinds of people complaining or, or debate around like, ah, it, it breaks incentives in Bitcoin. You know, I, I don't think pure data demand for block space really does quite as much. Uh, you could imagine some like MEV concerns where there's like trading of NFTs on Bitcoin and people want to reorg out a block so that they can do better MEV and, and, you know, snipe the other half of a, of a purchase or something on chain. You know, there, there's concerns about that that are maybe legitimate that certainly the data storage itself doesn't necessarily currently have. But, I, you know, I don't think that's... We'll see what the staying power is of ordinals to begin with, but I don't think that is, you know, a huge concern, especially if we are able to do some of these other things like uh, transaction fee smoothing to to maybe alleviate the fee sniping concerns. 
I see, yeah. And I'm curious your view because I- I've seen other people put out research reports. So, for example, Blockware, Joe Burnett and Pierre Richard put out a report. And one statistic that they came up with was basically saying it's almost like it might be the other way around. It might be that there's 80,000 times as much transaction demand, let's say, in that hypothetical future where so many people want to open or close lightning channels or rebalance I think if anything, it's, it's, and maybe it's a, it's a binary thing. It's like, it kind of, it kind of works or it doesn't. And maybe there's just that many people who want to transact on chain that it's not realistically going to be a problem, but we just, we don't really know today. It's hard to say, yeah, for sure, definitively, it's going to be a problem. Right. I, I think that's definitely true. I, I think, you know, I'm concerned because I look around and I think it's pretty clear that stable coins are out competing Bitcoin, that of everything in the kind of crypto space, Bitcoin and stablecoins are the only two classes of things that are really focusing on transacting. They're focused on, you know, transactional use cases. How do I move money from A to B? You know, Bitcoin also has the whole act as a money digital gold thing going on, but that hasn't generated a lot of, you know, that doesn't generate a lot of on-chain demand, probably. Uh, and that hasn't generated a lot of, you know, that seems to not be growing in terms of transaction volume versus the transacting use cases, of course, are, are generate transaction volume. But you look around at places where there should be a ton of demand for censorship-resistant transacting, right? Because that's ultimately why you would use Bitcoin to transact. You look at places with dysfunctional currency, you look at Lebanon, you look at Argentina, you look at all kinds of places in the world, you know, there's a large part of the world, and they're using Tether. They're using mostly Tether, occasionally USDC, and somewhere down the list, Bitcoin, right? So so there is some Bitcoin usage there where people are really, you know, they need censorship-resistant transactions because for whatever reason, they're unable to transact in a different way. And so here's this system that's providing really real important value. This Bitcoin thing is is really providing critical value to these people. And stablecoins just do a better job. And so I do wonder what the future holds in terms of that, because, you know, where, where do we go? Where do we go from here? Like, what is, I think the stablecoin thing is, is regulatory question mark, big regulatory question mark, right? We don't know. Currently, it's the case that you can transact in stablecoins without any KYC. You know, it's kind of the same AML KYC properties as Bitcoin, which is great, but we don't know if it'll stay that way. Super unclear what people in DC do. Who knows? You never really can predict that super well. But insofar as they remain that the way that they are today, where sure there are questions around censorship and like these single entities can seize your money, but for 99% of people, they, they don't. It works fine. They're eating up a lot of the demand for Bitcoin. And that's you know, selfie competition. But we as Bitcoiners need to correctly understand and represent Bitcoin to these potential users, right? So uh, when there's wallets that support Bitcoin and stablecoins, how do you communicate that to the user? How do you communicate, hey, here's this Bitcoin thing. It's you know, volatile, but it's volatile because you don't have to trust anyone. And here's the stablecoin thing. And it's not volatile, but it's not volatile because you have to trust someone in a way that 
is intuitive and that users understand and then can make the decision about what system is best for them, you know, so that they, you know, people, people are busy. They don't generally spend a bunch of time learning about all the ins and outs of what Bitcoin and what stable coins are and what the trust models are and yada, yada. So they just use what's available. And, you know, obviously stable coins have the US dollar thing on it, which is a great brand. And so people use that. And so how do we build platforms that communicate this appropriately to users where they can understand, you know, what their options are and they make an informed decision. And I think that's going to be the biggest challenge going forward for the Bitcoin community. Right. I, th- I think you're right. S- skillfully communicating that difference in censorship resistance, obviously. And I think for many of us, and I don't know, maybe your your view is similar, but I think a lot of us thought that the government was just going to drop the hammer a lot harder on these stable coins. Like if you would ask oh, yeah. most of us that question four, five, six years ago, you know, back when Omni was still around and everyone right. was, people were using Omni Tether, like Tether used to be on Bitcoin. And then it apparently, well, my recollection is it's more like the fees rose. And then for that reason, it kind of, a lot of the Tether demand today primarily exists on ERC-20 and TRC-20. So basically, if you talk to an OTC trader... Right, it's mostly Tron. Yeah, a lot of them want to use Tron because now it's cheaper. But now Bitcoin transactions have come cheaper again, too. So it's kind of like, you know... You know, I mean, if you're you're transacting Tether, you couldn't care less whether the blockchain you're on is super centralized. It doesn't matter. You're trusting the Tether company completely and fully and they can seize your money at any time and they can do whatever so like you don't care you might as well like you'd prefer to use a completely centralized database if you could but probably that doesn't meet regulatory muster so you got to play this little game of like finding the most centralized blockchain that regulators don't want to shut down and then you use that because centralization breeds better performance so yeah i mean you know it's moved on to other platforms but it's still and and yeah to your point i you know i thought regulators were going to shut it down now i think from the perspective of a regulator and certainly from the perspective of someone who has large us dollar bags you know i live in the us i'm obviously pretty tied to the us economy you know i I think that not shutting them down is the right move right you you have something that you have a little bit more ability to control than Bitcoin. Um, you know, they can seize funds. If they were to, you know, they could say tomorrow, like, you have to KYC in order to use USDC or Tether in order to transact with it at all. You have to KYC with the central entity. I think that would kill it entirely. They could do that tomorrow. I don't think they will because it would kill it entirely. But they might, you know, it may be the next, you know, whatever. They find some gang using usdc to move money and suddenly they just axe it and i figured like you four years ago or whatever i think everyone kind of figured that they would kill this stuff way faster than they have um but i think their decision not to is in fact smart uh you know i think that giving people especially in these economies where they really need better financial services uh access to the us dollar via digital rail that doesn't require kyc to use is actually really, really great for the dollar and for the dollar hegemony and the ability of the U.S. to screw over lots of other countries by exporting inflation and all kinds of other problems that 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 causes. But it's great for the U.S. And so I I think, or at least I hope they, you know, as, as as an American, I hope they don't crack down on this stuff. But I don't know that that'll remain true. But, you know, to the extent that they don't, I think Bitcoiners need to figure out the best way to communicate what the risks are with these things and figure out how to, you know, what value 
for whom in though in those shoes for whom for the people who have a strong need for censorship resistant transactions what value is bitcoin providing in excess of stable coins in practice and for who which people can bitcoin still provide a lot of value in excess of stable coins or you know can we build more decentralized options for stable coins right like uh, I, I think the DLC designs, so contract for difference for uh, having a wallet that is actually in Bitcoin, but trading in a decentralized market that runs contract, runs a CFD so that you get a relatively stable balance. You pay a fee to some market maker who, who hedges out the Bitcoin risk. It can also be potentially way more uh, decentralized way more censorship resistant than stable coins while still giving you a US dollar balance. So, you know, there's other things, you know, we, we can still provide a similar value using Bitcoin, but sadly, uh, the DLC stuff hasn't, it's not there. The DLC on lightning, which is really what you'd want for that kind of design is still being worked on slash maybe would do better with some kind of Sighash no input soft fork slash we'll get there when we get there. But, you know, I think there's other directions there too that we need to go. But uh, yeah. we as Bitcoiners need to focus on building out a platform that's more competitive with stable coin, building out censorship resistant platforms that are more competitive with stable coins and ideally not just ship stable coins on Bitcoin because that's not solving a problem. Right. Yeah. And I think there's a few points I want to make here. So one, I, I would just recently was speaking offline to uh, Abu Bakr Nur Khalil. So he is the, you know, one of the guys involved with Kala and recursive capital. He's in Nigeria. And I was asking him just curious, are you seeing people using Bitcoin or stable coins? And he was saying, yeah, look, there's a lot of people after stable coins, but he was saying, Slowly, there are more people in Nigeria who are going for Bitcoin, slowly but surely. So, you know, maybe to some extent, you know, it's a bull and bear market thing, right? Right now, we're, you know, maybe we're kind of still in a bear market. So maybe, you know, just chasing off the number go up only, but, you know, we can't really deny that that's often a reality that pulls people in. And then maybe once they're in, then they kind of learn a bit more about actually having Bitcoin. That's one idea. And I'm curious as well, maybe some of these stable coins are kind of like a turkey. It's like a turkey problem, right? Like, yeah, it gets fatter and fatter until eventually it just gets killed. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are, unfortunately for them, if they are in another country where maybe their government or the banking system there doesn't allow them to hold above a certain US dollar balance, for them, they would rather take that risk of tether or even a custodial you know, position. I guess one other thing with some of the DLC stablecoin stuff, I, di I did an episode with Chris Stewart a little while back talking about exactly how that would work. But I think the challenge for now is that some of this stuff, it just seems really far away. Whereas like people, they have a today problem. They can't afford to just wait for the soft fork and for the, you know, all these things. So then I guess the question then is, should Bitcoiners be amenable to some of these like multi-coin wallets or should we be more like, or, or like, let's say an RGB or a Taro or even the custodial platforms? Or should it be more like, no, just build out and communicate the difference? Why is Bitcoin different and focus on the Bitcoin only aspect? I'm curious uh, how you're seeing that. So, yeah, I mean, a few things. Yeah, I, I do think at least it's my impression and I don't have super detailed knowledge, but it is my impression that Bitcoin has done a little better in Nigeria than in, for example, Lebanon or Argentina, that Nigerian, for whatever reason, Nigerian culture is just a little more excited about this, like, don't trust anyone property. So, yeah, I mean, there are definitely, like, let's not confuse it, there are definitely people who get into 
cryptocurrency in one way or another, stable coins probably, and then look around and say like, oh, this Bitcoin thing is not trusting anyone. That's awesome. I want to get into that. So that does, you know, Bitcoin is competitive in that market, certainly. As for the, yeah, I mean, it, it is absolutely the case that people can't use stable coins outside of these super trusted versions today. Um, there's DAI, there's the like decentralized stablecoin thing on Ethereum that's like supposed to be a little more decentralized, but in fact, actually DAI is like now mostly backed by USDC. So it didn't, it hasn't moved the needle there. USDC could still chop it and kill it. So that didn't really make a difference. There's a few other projects, but they keep imploding and yada yada. So yeah, I mean, certainly people are, are going to use what's available today. They want the, they, want to solve their problem today and so they're going to use what they can and that's usdc although honestly even the, like the transacting platforms for these things aren't super great i guess the, some of the ethereum l2s have started shipping in meaningful ways and so you can now transact easier in these things you know previously you had ethereum transaction fees which were super high uh, which was a problem but these days it's, it's a little easier to transact with those uh, so people are encouraged to use that in terms of like, let's just ship Taro or something like that to ship stable coins on Bitcoin. I mean, you haven't changed the number. You haven't changed anything, right? You're still, you still have this very centralized token that they could theoretically prevent you from redeeming, et cetera. Uh, it, it is a little more private because it's on lightning. Um, and so you do get that potentially you get that ability to clear transactions without the issuer seeing those transactions but then it's also not clear what the regulatory response to that's going to be uh if regulators aren't just going to say like ah that's even worse for aml compliance than usdc and tether are you have a weak aml compliance story you can't issue a stable coin or if you know the the kind of Taro design as described requires you, the end user who has a lightning wallet to have a channel with a market maker. And that market maker will, you know, when you send an HTLC, it'll turn your dollar balance in your Taro balance into Bitcoin and then route the, the Bitcoin HTLC. What the regulator regulatory requirements are on that market maker is also unclear um, because ultimately they're they're executing a trade on your behalf. So that might also be an issue. So, you know, Taro, a lot remains to be seen with Taro, especially around the uh, regulatory overhead. But a lot of that's going to inform whether it's changing, moving the needle or not, whether whether it's just another stable coin that's the same as all the existing ones. And like, it's cool that they're building one on Lightning, I guess. Maybe it'll have a little better UX, but, like, it's not, you know, in that sense, it wouldn't change the, like, people still aren't really using Bitcoin, still not. Maybe it's creating some transaction volume on Bitcoin, but not a lot, and it's and it's just another centralized, trusted stablecoin, or whether it's going to be materially different, and I'm not really holding my breath, I admit. But, yeah, DLCs, like, you know, I think... We need to make them happen in one way or another. Um, you know, there's Bitcoin does currently have the luxury of not needing a lot of transaction demand because we have this block subsidy thing that's going to keep going for a little bit. But we also have to get the pieces in place. Like Bitcoin has spent the last whatever 10, 11, 12 years 
more than that now, building a brand and building a really strong brand. And I think, you know, one thing that whatever your your politics are, whatever your view of the Canadian trucker protest stuff was, the fact was all of the discussion around the donations of that were about how people were using Bitcoin to avoid financial censorship. And I think nearly everyone I saw in those conversations Almost none of them Bitcoiners, almost none of them cared about Bitcoin, but whether it was pro or against, they all understood why Bitcoin was being used there and what Bitcoin was valuable for. And I thought that was really interesting, right? That it was, here's, you know, that Bitcoin has entered the mainstream consciousness and not just like entered it, like people are aware of this like weird scammy investment product Bitcoin thing. No, people are aware of Bitcoin is a tool for moving money when you're being censored. And I thought that was freaking awesome. And so we've built this great brand around what Bitcoin is and people kind of intuitively understand what Bitcoin and why Bitcoin and when Bitcoin, but now we have to build out the tools. And so we've built, you know, with Lightning, we're finally getting to the point where like the user experience of actually transacting in Bitcoin is pretty awesome. And so now to your point, it's it's really time to start shipping, you know, other features that are important like DLCs, like uh, the ability to hold stable balances. So a few things like with the even with the Canadian trucker example, I, I can see mixed messages out there because there are some people saying, well, look, actually, a whole bunch of people got censored because they were using like, and, and maybe you could say, hey, they did it wrong, uh, etc. But I know at least some of the Bitcoin went through and it has been used in lots of situations, whether it's on both sides of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, there have been people using Bitcoin, right? And that's kind of the same kind of idea. I know Taj Dreiger popularized this idea a few years ago, Bitcoin is the money of enemies. And it really is in that way. And so that, that part is cool. I think it's fair to also say what a lot of people are doing today. Let's say if they're not really in the Bitcoin world, if they want to have a Bitcoin address, Bitcoin donation, they just kind of put up one single address. And of course, you and I know we can do a lot better than that. We could have, you know, you could be running a BTC pay. You could have a lightning address. You could do some kind of, you know, maybe in the future we can have Bolt 12 and that would make it like, lightning enabled really fast cheap donations as opposed to this kind of everyone doing what people were doing 10 years ago right um and maybe that is also part of you know the story of bitcoin is making lightning experience making the lightning experience better and smoother for more people um in a non-custodial way because i think that's also another angle of criticism we're seeing is oh look um, all you Bitcoiners, there's a lot of people using custodial lightning address as an example, right, because right. we don't have, and I guess this is something you, I know you were trying to solve this with asynchronous payments as well. Um, uh, I believe 20, late 2021, I think you did a, a post on the lightning dev about, on the lightning dev mailing list about this idea. And maybe that's something that could potentially help in this kind of situation. Maybe it's Bolt 12. I'm curious what you see is what are, the, what are some of the big wins that we could get in lightning that would really make it more, feasible for the average person yeah um i know i mean i think that's the those examples are great those are great examples uh yeah like lightning address has you know requires kind of a custodian or at least requires a a, a party that can censor if they want to or could steal your money kind of is an intermediary um so that's you know, again, it's it's something that's shipped because people have a today problem. They had problems with the user experience of Lightning. Um, they needed to ship something that improved the user experience, and so you know, LNURL and Lightning Address sh- fixed those issues and shipped. 
and fixed it in a relatively easy way, relatively simple protocol. And so, you know, people adopted it relatively quickly with, you know, Bolt 12 and then in the future async payments, you know, there's just all these things that need to be built on top of Lightning to provide a similar, you know, solution, a similar user experience fix for without trusting centralized parties, without trusting custodians or, or someone who could, in theory, steal your money. It, it's, it's hard. You know, we have to ship Onion messages so that we have a messaging layer within Lightning that still has the privacy of the uh, multi-hop routing network. You know, we have to build on top of that with the ability to request a, a new invoice. Um, and then we have to use that messaging layer to signal when you're online so that we can route an HTLC only when you're online so that we can do asynchronous payments. So, yeah, I mean, we have to build out all these things and it, it takes time. Um, and it's been, fr- you know, it's always frustrating that things don't ship faster, but it's being worked on. It's coming and that will hopefully improve the user experience. But I think, you know, broadly, yes, it is the case that, you know, a bunch of the, the truckers had their funds seized by Coinbase, etc. And, you know, obviously we want Bitcoin to not have that problem, but a few things you know, I, I'm more excited that they tried, that they like kind of used Bitcoin at all because they said, oh, I have a financial censorship problem. Oh, Bitcoin. And like, sure, they got burned a little bit because uh, they used a custodial platform and it, it seized their funds. And that that's sad. But also like custodial platforms are always going to exist. You know, we're always going to have those kinds of relationships because it makes things more efficient. You know, I view my job as improving the non-custodial user experience to get it as close as possible to the custodial user experience, we're never going to do better. You know, with the possible exception of like custodial, being a custodian being very expensive because of the regulatory compliance overhead. Aside from that, being a custodian is always more efficient. Like it's all, you're always going to be able to build a better user experience because you're a big company with a lot of resources. You can do instant clearing between your users. You can probably do instant clearing to other custodial entities. You know, you can have a, a username and password login instead of key management. Like all this stuff is just so much easier. And so I view, you know, again, I, I view my job as like, how close to that can we get while keeping it decentralized? And like, you know, I, I think it's also, a, we'll always have some custodians, but also remember that competition between custodians can solve a lot of problems for users too, right? In the same way that stable coins, although they comply with a U.S. regulatory overhead, uh, they don't kind of comply with, like, for example, you know, USDC is not in compliance with Lebanese rules around how much dollar balance an individual can have. And that's what gives it value to someone in Lebanon, right? Uh, in the same way, a custodian in the U.S. or a custodian, uh, you know, Binance is super popular uh, across the world for people who just want a dollar balance, right? They just open a Binance account and move some of their lo- – they wire some of their local currency to Binance and then buy USDC and keep it in Binance. Like, that's a common use case. That kind of – it exists in another country. It's a sort of trusted entity, um, but it doesn't have to comply with your local laws because it doesn't really exist in your country and you can just use it from your country does allow this kind of regulatory arbitrage that can still add a lot of value as long as they're building on something that is censorship resistant uh, so that we still solve problems with custodial platforms. Yeah, I think that's fair to point out. I think 
I'm also thinking back to a talk, actually, Jameson Lopp did this at uh, the Plan B Lugano Forum, and basically he was talking about how, over the years, email servers became centralized, and it became so difficult that an average individual could not run their own email server because of all the whitelisting happening between the big platforms, whether it's Gmail and you know all the other, Yahoo and whatever else. I think maybe that's one future that as Bitcoiners and Lightning users, we're trying to stave that off, right? Because we want this future to be possible that you could be just an everyday average retail, you know, individual who can run and use a Lightning node or or a Lightning, at least a Lightning app on the phone. Um, I'm curious, do you see that as like, is that a possible future? Like if, if, if the community, let's say, and the developers don't develop in the right way. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a concern, but it's also something where we solve that by having enough people running their own node, right? So the reason it is so hard to run an email server is because it's very easy for Yahoo to just block a lot of email servers because or just block most internet most of the internet ip space by default because there's such a small tail long tail of really tiny volume email you know you're talking about blocking such a small amount of email that no one complains it's not a problem for anyone if on the other hand so if you imagine today like cash app were to go say, like, we're only going to send lightning payments to these other nodes, and it's just, like, Kraken and a few of the big exchanges, and that's it. Suddenly, it'd be useless, because very few of the invoices, tons of invoices are to BTC Pay server, tons of invoices are to, you know, end-user mobile handset nodes that are actually running the lightning protocol, you know, have their own keys, uh, are non-custodial. So, by ensuring that things remain relatively easy to use in a non-custodial way and by accurately communicating to users the value of non-custodial bitcoin usage we have we will have enough users that it won't be possible to for large companies to just start by default blocking everything and so that i'm not concerned about like that future is possible yes but i'm not concerned about it because Lightning, like there's just not a trend that's coming in Lightning. That's not a trend that we're going towards. It's not something that I'm very concerned about because it's just not coming down the pipeline. Yeah. So I'm curious, actually, what would you see as the big concerns in terms of the future of Bitcoin and Lightning and and so on? Yeah. I mean, I I think I am very concerned that we're getting outcompeted, right? Ultimately, that that Bitcoin is, you know, we're not building stable we're building dlc based stable coins slowly mostly chris stewart but there's one or two other teams you know that stuff is coming very slowly uh people are using stable coins in places where the regulatory risk might not make that necessarily the optimal decision for them we're not communicating that there's not a lot of uh communication of those differences in wallets and in the places where people get access to it. More importantly, you know, Bitcoin is still hard to get. Like in the US, it's a solved problem. You know, we're, we all sit here in the Western world or, or, you know, in, in relatively developed economies where there's access to cryptocurrency exchanges that are super great. You know, you can download Cash App and buy Bitcoin. It's super easy. They have the onboarding flow great. You go to Lebanon and it's, it's hard to get. You know, you're still talking about like meet the sketchy guy in the coffee shop and hand him some cash and he'll give you like that's still the process for parts of the world where Bitcoin makes 
might make the biggest impact and might have the biggest demand and might have the biggest potential user base. So we really need to improve that situation a lot. And I don't see a lot of, you know, it's hard because like, I can't do anything about that. You know, you need people in those countries who know the systems in place, who know how to maneuver to do the work and, and build those platforms. And they're taking on potentially a lot of legal risk. There's other reasons why they don't want to, but solving the access problem is still not a solved problem. And I think we, we naively treat it as a solved problem, uh, because it's so easy for us to get Bitcoin and it's just not for a lot of the world. So the access problem is still a big concern. You know, there's, there's, was some effort that like TBD folks at Block were trying to do a, trying to do dids in a way that, that kind of alleviate the KYC problem. So you do KYC with some provider and then, uh, you, the exchange can, you want to operate a bro, Bitcoin brokerage. You can use their, this third party provider's KYC solution. And then, uh, it also has a wallet plugin so that you kind of, you run a brokerage and you just have to like run the brokerage part. You can like lean on someone else for KYC and you can acquire users via some other, via some kind of marketplace that exists across wallets. You know, it hasn't really shipped anything. We'll see where it goes. I'm not sure if that's exactly what they're focusing on building now. Um, so there are, I think there are ideas of how to do this in a way that makes it easier by reducing the friction required to start a Bitcoin brokerage, uh, across the world. But, you know, I just don't see a lot of motion there. So I guess back to the show in a moment. BTC Prague is coming up June 8th to 10th. This is going to be the biggest Bitcoin event in Europe, in Prague, the Czech Republic, and it's going to be fantastic. Prague is a beautiful city. Make sure you check your calendar, put it into your diary now, look up flights and hotels. It's going to be an awesome experience. I'm going to be there. I'll be one of the MCs. There is an awesome range of speakers coming, and whether you are a builder, a developer, just a, an everyday stacker and hodler, there's something for you here at this conference and event. There will be a range of different tickets available, such as the conference ticket. There is also an industry ticket for those of you interested in an extra one-day business conference that's more B2B focused. And there is the whale ticket. So for those of you who want access to unique whale zones, you want white glove treatment and premium food and drinks throughout all three days, as well as an exclusive party event for whale ticket holders. Go to btcprog.com, use code Levera for a discount there. Mempool.space is a comprehensive Bitcoin explorer. It shows the entire Bitcoin ecosystem from the mempool to the blockchain to second layer networks like the Lightning Network. So when I'm about to send a Bitcoin on-chain transaction, I normally check on mempool.space so that I know to target the fee level. And mempool.space has all kinds of features that have been recently added, such as block audits. You can see data on RBF transactions replaced by fee transactions, and it has an infinitely scrolling blockchain. So there's all kinds of new features, so go and check it out. Also with mempool.space, you don't have to trust a third party. You can host it yourself. Now, if you are with an enterprise, mempool.space has custom mempool instances. You can get your company's branding. You can get increased API limits, increased access and availability for feature requests. Go and find out more at mempool.space enterprise. Now, when it comes to securing your coins for the long haul, Unchained Capital can help you with multi-signature. Unchained Capital 
multi-signature is secure, transparent, easy to use, and sovereign. So the way it works typically is you have two keys in different locations and Unchained holds the third key. So you can remove single points of failure in your setup and keep your keys in different locations. And this can give you that additional peace of mind knowing that it's so much harder for somebody to steal your coins or you're less likely to lose them and that Unchained Capital can help you in the process. They have a concierge onboarding program where they can walk you through the process if you need guidance. They can ship you the hardware. They can do a call with you to teach you how to do this. And they even have ways to help in an inheritance scenario, such as a checklist. They have letters for the executor or trustee. So go and find out more. You can find it over at unchained.com slash concierge. Use code Levera for a discount. And now back to the show. Yeah, so as you were mentioning, in Lebanon, there was a high interest rate in US dollar terms previously. And then, of course, as things start to unwind... Now, there is high demand for Bitcoin, as you were mentioning. Um, and I think, you know, maybe some of that is just people, unfortunately, for better or worse, everyone's just going to have to, a lot of people just have to learn the hard way and they have to just get wrecked. It's sad. It's not, I'm not saying it's what we want to see, but I, I think that's just kind of the reality of how people often learn. And I think it's probably also fair to say, like you say, in, the, in most of the West and the developed countries, it's a bit easier to buy Bitcoin. But even there... There are a lot of banking difficulties that even the Western Bitcoin companies struggle with because they they they're at they're often at risk of getting debanked or having issues getting money or even customers who want to wire U.S. dollars to that bank they they sometimes run into issues as well because their bank will start asking them questions saying hey hey Matt what's this big transfer to X Y Z exchange for have you got an invoice for that or something you know so even there it's it's you know there's just been continual difficulties even for those Western Bitcoin entrepreneurs so you know it's I I can sort of see it being difficult for a lot of people oh yeah I mean there's it's you know you you have the Bitcoin there's also just a lot of people in the U S who don't have financial services don't have a bank account period Uh, so that's a whole other set of issues so that you know that's not to say there aren't a lot of problems getting access to bitcoin in the u.s you know i i imagine there will be increasingly more problems in the eu over the next number of years uh with regulation trying to crack down on uh the ability of people to hold their own keys that is a priority for some set of regulators there um some set of lawmakers there i should say so we'll see what happens going forward and how that changes but yeah, I mean, it's still is is an order of magnitude easier when you have you can download Cash App and at least like fight with your bank and whatever versus oh you have to like know someone who knows someone whose you know son is into crypto and you can meet him at a coffee shop and they'll you know it's just like it, it's just a different world, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's fair. Um, so then in terms of what can be done about it in terms of like what the builders, the entrepreneurs, the developers, what do you see is maybe the short or medium term options there? Is it having stablecoin support or is it, you know, trying to build peer to peer aspects of it? Is it, yeah, I mean, what are you sort of, or is it technological? Is there something that can be technologically done to improve the situation? A few things. First of all, I think I'm, I'm really happy over the last six to 12 to 18 months, we've really seen an increase in the number of people trying to build things in the Bitcoin space. 
prior to that, you know, we had this kind of trend super early in Bitcoin. There was so much excitement across kind of the Silicon Valley crowd. They funded all these startups building, uh, you know, Bitcoin brokerages and Bitcoin XYZ and all kinds of stuff. And then through the block size wars, a lot of that crowd got dismayed about Bitcoin. It's like, oh, this Bitcoin thing, it, it doesn't listen to us. It, we can't we can't change it and you know it it doesn't scale so uh we should move on to other things it doesn't change you know it it you know we want to build all these complicated smart contract things that other platforms are offering and bitcoin won't change for us to to offer that so we're just going to go elsewhere and you saw you know all of those vc dollars and all of the more importantly all of the founder interest you know all of the kind of crowd of folks who are super excited about building startups move kind of outside of bitcoin um and we've seen some of that come back and again i think this is kind of part of the trend of like people starting to really better recognize that these systems are specializing that bitcoin has specialized on uh, the concept of censorship resistant money and that Ethereum is specializing on being a platform for collectibles, whether it's NFTs or, you know, issuing shares in your company on the blockchain and doing regulatory arbitrage around share issuance of your company shares, you know, whatever it is. And that, that those are different, but those are both useful and, and people should build on both of those. And then we've seen, and so we've seen, uh, now more VC dollars going into Bitcoin. You know, we've seen that there have been Bitcoin focused VC funds around forever. Like there's a few of them, but we've seen a lot more of them show up in the last number of years. Some of that with Lightning as well, where, you know, people have seen that you can build a better user experience with Lightning. And so suddenly maybe it makes more sense to build on Bitcoin. Uh, so we have seen a big explosion of the number of people building startups in the Bitcoin space and in the Lightning space especially. But again, not a lot focused on access outside the Western world, a lot focused on the technology side, a lot focused on improving the user experience, some stuff focused on building towards uh, stable coins, whether it's on Taro or, or hopefully more DLCs in the future, but not a lot on the access side. So we'll see. I, I don't think that's a technological problem, though. And so you have a lot of kind of Western folks who want to build on the technology side, which is great, and we can improve the UX, and we should keep doing that because that's really, really critical. But we need, you know, local entrepreneurs. And that's why, you know, you look at like B-Trust, um, this Africa-based uh, foundation to build Bitcoin developers and, and, and fund Bitcoin development on the continent. You look at, I mean, I guess maybe that's one of the, the best examples, but you look at pro projects like that are really important to get people excited about building in the space and just general, you know, people care about Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin has a lot of usage in Nigeria. And so that, that also, and Nigeria obviously also has historically been a very entrepreneurial economy. So that also hopefully going forward leads to more development of better access solutions those parts in, you know, outside the Western world, I should say, or outside the, yeah, outside the Western world. So, yeah, I, I don't think it, that said, there is maybe some technology that can be built, you know, so better uh, ability. Like if you build a brokerage, now you have to acquire users, you know, having that integrated in wallets, um, you know, that's historically been a way wallets have made money is they integrate, you know, a brokerage in the Western world, at least, where you integrate a brokerage that, can service customers they buy bitcoin with credit card or whatever it's some exorbitant fee 
So you can do wallet integration, but having a, a marketplace for that in local markets, um, you know, you certainly can't use Coinbase in, in Nigeria built into wallets. That's something that could be built, you know, so there are some things people could build, but I, I don't know how much that's going to really make the world of different, a world of difference to people who just want to build a brokerage outside the Western world. Um, ultimately, that just takes local entrepreneurs being excited about Bitcoin, uh, wanting to build on Bitcoin and wanting to provide that service for people. Yeah. And I think it, there's a bit of a cultural point here, right? Obviously, with, obviously, I've been very critical of things like Ethereum with a pre mine and, you know, the culture. And I, I think there's like a very strong Ponzi kind of dynamic. I think that I think people underrate and maybe that's a cultural thing as well, because people sort of say, Oh, look, Bitcoin doesn't do all this stuff. Um, because it doesn't have all this technology, but then you sort of see, well, as an example, even this whole ordinal inscriptions thing. I mean, I don't know, maybe it seems to have kind of died down a bit recently. And it's kind of like, well, you had this technology, but really, I think it was just a lot of people who were, maybe it wasn't competing about the technology. It was kind of competing on, you know, Bitcoin entrepreneurs were being expected to compete with Ponzi operators or people who were benefiting from being a part of the Ponzi. And so, you know, but I think the cultural point you make is right. I think certainly that um, people being interested to build Bitcoin things, we're seeing Bitcoin communities, right? There is no ethereum beach there is no you know <laughs> there's bitcoin akasi there's bitcoin island there's all these you know communities and there's meetup groups you know well yeah you just don't see a culture in ethereum of trying to build out a payments platform it's not the goal you know maybe for some people it is for people building stable coins maybe but you know the ethereum world is about you know a lot of it's about being able to trade things um, and, and again, whether it's like an NFT, some kind of collectible with, you know, value people assigned to it, um, or whether it's, you know, a lot of DAOs, they're not that decentralized. Usually it's just a company with three people on a discord running a company. And maybe there's a little bit more share voting for decisions, but not really, but you know, they're issuing shares in their company. That's what they're doing, right? Like they're issuing shares in their company without the legal overhead of, getting a lawyer and filing an LLC and you talk to a lawyer, maybe they should be doing that too. But and then and then being able to trade those, right? Listing those on on decentralized exchanges. But none of that has anything to do with payments or money. Right. That's just you're issuing things to trade. And you know, obviously with a decentralized marketplace where you anyone can issue something and it instantly starts trading, you have a lot of people who want to build Ponzi's and you want have a lot of people who want to just build investment scams. And that's been a problem, certainly. But like ultimately, the the focus is on issuing things to trade, and that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. That's not competitive with Bitcoin. That's not anything. But it is certainly a way to make a lot more money, right? If if you're doing a lot of trading volume, there's a lot more money to be had in that than just doing transacting in Bitcoin. And so that's also part of the reason why a lot of the you know, again, some of that, you know, it's also very easy to make money by issuing shares that don't represent anything and then tr pumping and dumping it and and having all those scams. But ultimately, like all of that stuff, just it, it's way more easy to make money there. And so that's also been why people have been more drawn to that world over Bitcoin. And but now I think there's been like that world has matured a little bit to the point that. You know, now you might have to have an actual business plan to to make as much money. And as a result, people are, are taking more stock. And, and I think that 
that world has solidified around what it is, right? You know, Ethereum has been like the ephemeral, like, we're this, we're that, we're that. And it, it keeps changing kind of every bull market as it kind of maneuvers to find a niche where it's like adding real value. And so, you know, initially everyone was like, oh yeah, Ethereum's just going to beat Bitcoin. It's going to outcompete it. And then it's like, well, it has all these features that Bitcoin doesn't have. And, and now it's like, well, yeah, Ethereum does these things and Bitcoin does these things. And like, that's a super healthy place to be. And that's, that's how we should like, you know, I, Bitcoiners love to, to point at the scams on Ethereum. And it's true that this, like having an open investment platform where anyone can issue shares and they instantly start trading it excites lots of scammers and it draws so many scammers. There's so many scams there. Uh, there's so many issues with pump and dumps. There's so many issues with people who issue DAOs and it was actually three people in a discord. And then like those three people got bored and did something else, but not until after they've sold all their shares and now everyone's sitting there holding worthless tokens. Like, yeah, that, that's a huge issue, but you know, it's also not that space has matured a little bit and there are things that aren't that, you know, you have a lot of, you know, company like, I mean, shit, Disney and Gucci are issuing NFTs, right? Like, I, sure, I'm not going to buy them. I, like, I don't buy baseball cards either, but lots of people buy these collectibles. No one's confused about what they're getting. There's, you know, I think NFTs have done very well for the Ethereum space because there's been a lot more clarity when you buy these things, what they are. You know, I don't think, again, I don't think people buying NFTs are really confused about the fact that they're buying a digital collectible. That's what they're referred to. It's just a baseball card or not even a baseball card. It's just a picture and, you know, whatever. Like, no one's confused about that. You know, you can't really call it a scam if no one's really confused about it. If there's not this kind of like pump and dump going on. Yeah. Someone issued a bunch of images and sold them to you and they did no work to do that. But you knew that going in because they did no work to make those images. Like you knew that from day one. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that's improved that space a lot because there's been a lot more kind of everyone's been upfront about what's going on. And, and as a result, there's been kind of a, 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 I think, a better understanding of how different things fit into the broader cryptocurrency ecosystem. Right. So, I, and certainly even there, I could see, I could imagine, I had a chat recently with uh, Casey Radama, the guy behind, uh, you know, the the recent ordinals and inscriptions. I'm not an inscriptor myself personally. I discourage it, but he has criticisms of shitcoin NFTs also, because he said, you know, in a way, Bitcoin... He, you could argue the bull case would be, oh, Bitcoin does it better, right? It's in, it's immutable. It's it's actually on the chain per se. It's not just a pointer. You know, there's various critiques that he has of of that too. So maybe that's interesting as well. But also, I want to chat a little bit about Bitcoin and you know changes to Bitcoin because it seems that, uh, and I know you're someone who's you know you're one of the earliest known uh, Bitcoin core developers, and now obviously you're more focused on Lightning, but still obviously involved in the ecosystem. I'm curious your view on where changes to Bitcoin could happen. Like I, I, as an example, people are talking about Opvault, AnyProv out. There's been some talk about drive chains. Are these technologies that Bitcoiners should consider? Should they, you know, should w- would they help Bitcoin scale to the, you know, scale more or self custody? Would it help scale the self custody more? Or do you see it like okay? Let me put this into a question. The soft fork frequency has been slowing down a lot. Is that a good thing? Yeah. A few things. So, so first of all, it's a historical tone, right? So, so 
prior to SegWit, prior, prior to the block size wars, let's say, you know, softworks happened with some relative frequency once a year, once every other year or whatever. And, you know, we're relatively uncontroversial, right? They're not in the sense that like the Bitcoin community didn't care or wasn't like, you know, actively monitoring and learning about what these changes are and like having other, there were fewer people who chimed in, but, but people had an opinion, uh, which is good. But they were also just kind of less, uh, they just, didn't have any kind of political, like no one was interested in, in debating the politics of it because it wasn't interested in like CT, uh, like check sequence verify, like having a better way to do time locks in the scripts of a Bitcoin transaction. Cool. Yeah. No one's going to complain about that. Who cares? It's not like changing anything fundamental about Bitcoin. It's just one little new feature. It's not, you know, whatever. The block size words change that, obviously, um, where, this debate around changing the block size very quickly turned into having nothing to do about the block size itself. Uh, it was just people batting around numbers and whatever, but had everything to do with like how Bitcoin should work, how changes to Bitcoin should work. Uh, you know, what, what's the process for changes to Bitcoin, et cetera. And that turned into a big debate around that. And so that turned a lot of people off from forks, right? And so you had kind of a lot of the folks who worked on Bitcoin Core at the time moved off and, and started doing other things after the like, you know, the, the block size wars is a super high pressure environment where people were like constantly worried about not only did they become more controversial, but also the people who spent time working on softworks just kind of went off and did other things because this scaling controversy and the scaling drama kept everyone really focused on like Bitcoin core and softworks and whatever. And suddenly there was a little bit of breathing room. And so a lot of people kind of went off and did other things. Um, and so there just wasn't a lot of desire to go through any kind of drama and it just wasn't worth it. And there were so many other things to build, like, you know, building lightning stuff, building music and better, better multi-sig stuff in Bitcoin, building mini script and output descriptors and all of these, these kinds of technologies that people wanted to build, but were busy focusing on Bitcoin core. So then there wasn't a lot of interest in spending time on soft forks. And so we kind of decayed off like there wasn't no one was really working on potential forks. Uh, nothing really happened. Then in part, you know, the, the community grew and grew and grew. And there wasn't strong memory about how, you know, wasn't strong shared context across the community about how soft work should happen, which means that any soft work immediately turns into drama about how soft work should happen because there's not shared context. And so that turned people off even more from working on soft works. And, you know, a lot of, so now there's kind of this pent up demand, right? There's this pent up demand. Like you mentioned a few things like vaults, covenants in general, also see hash, no input, which I guess kind of is a covenant, but like is a little tangential. So like that whole class of things is like drive changes. A number of other things that people want to do from a feature perspective that, you know, there's like some people who want it, but like it's not clear what the process is. So it's kind of hard to make progress. But then there's also like other stuff we should do. Like I mentioned earlier, having, uh, fee reward smoothing, right? So having fees from transactions in a block be kind of averaged out over a number of blocks. Like these are really important things we should add that 
isn't a feature, so no one's excited to kind of spend their time working on it, but also it's a soft fork, so no one's excited to spend their time working on it because there's probably drama there. You know, I, I think we need to do some of these things. Um, I don't know what the subset is, whatever, but, but we do need to do some of these things. And I, you know, I, I think there is precedent for how fork should happen, right? But we have to go back in time quite a ways to find it. And that does make it tricky uh, to figure out and, and to kind of recoalesce around some shared context of how software should happen is something that's not uh, easy and not clear to a lot of folks, I think, kind of what, what the process should look like for that. So it's hard. I Like, I don't know what the future holds there. I'm hopeful that the folks who want to work on SoftForks in Bitcoin can find that path uh, and can make, you know, I think the, the specific issues also depend on which software we're talking about. Like we talk about like covenants. Well, the problem with the covenant stuff is there's like four different, five different, six different proposals, whatever, and no really strong arguments about like this proposal the lack of formalization, there's no strong arguments around like this proposal is clearly the right one because it does this and that and like is cleaner for these reasons and like enables this use case and like here are the, you know, three use cases we care about or five use cases we care about and here's how they all break up. And there's been some attempts at formalization. You know, I know Jeremy did some work on his CTV proposal to try to formalize it a little better, but, and like kind of list use cases. But, you know, I think there was some debate around the, the use cases he listed. And also more importantly, there wasn't a lot of, there was some debate around how formal the comparisons of it versus other potential solutions was. And then, yeah, now Jams has the op vault proposal. Um, and I admit I haven't followed super deeply the details of that proposal, but I don't get the sense that it has kind of solved that formalism problem either, right? That it hasn't kind of done a, a nitty gritty analysis of, of all that kind of why this one versus some other one. Um, because, you know, the, the tough part with Bitcoin changing Bitcoin is we can't undo it. We can't remove that complexity later. We can't, you know, people are going to start using it. People are going to put coins in it. We can't remove it. And if it's kind of a hack or if it doesn't enable the right set of features, then we're like doing another soft fork later to add a whole parallel set of features uh, that isn't compatible with the thing we just did. And it's just not clear that that's kind of worth the effort to me. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see where where we end up with that work. Um, I'm, again, I'm hopeful, but it's got to have the right kind of arguments behind it. Um, but I'm also hopeful that, you know, we get back to a world where, where we can do other soft forks that are kind of more bug fixy, like transaction fee smoothing, like, you know, removing the sig hash, uh, sorry, opcode separator and squared signature hashing stuff, which can make blocks pretty slow to validate. You know, all these things we should clean up in Bitcoin, we should do them um, and we should do forks to clean these things up and not necessarily just add features like we have to, you know, keep Bitcoin running and keep Bitcoin secure and safe is is more important than, than adding features. But yeah, we I mean, we have to again, we have to kind of build some kind of shared context around how these things should happen before we can really get too far down that rabbit hole again, I think.
Yeah. And so I guess the other question then is, do you see a lot of the innovation happening at application level? Like, is it just about building things out in apps? And I know, obviously, you're focused on LDK, Rust Lightning. And I know um, either yourself or your, your team were, were focusing on this idea of mobile graph syncing as an example. So the idea is that your, I, I believe your mobile app could quickly sync the lightning graph and as, as an example. So do you see that as the direction then that, let's say, things people who want things to move faster, they're going to have to do things at the application level? Y- yes and no. Bitcoin consensus has never been fast. Like, even we go back years, we go back 10 years, or we go back, I guess, you know, seven, eight years, nine years, and software still took a year or two. You know, things things were never super fast. So it's always been the case that you can do more at the application level faster uh, it's just, I think, more a function. The fact that we're seeing more time spent at the ap- application level is more a function of the fact that these things have shipped and that there's now enough resources. You know, it's not like we didn't know about payment channels in 2011. It's not like people are in, yeah, in 2011 or maybe 2012. It's not like people didn't know that we wanted to build a network of payment channels throughout payments. Like that's a super old idea. Now the HTLC construct added a little more to it to make it much more practical. Um, the kind of like pay in small increments payment channel network concepts, you know, didn't really scale and were maybe a little uncertain. So the HTLC construct added a lot, but there's also duplex micropayment channels um, and other constructions that kind of came around around a similar time. But more importantly, we just finally have the resources. Like there's there's enough people paid to work full time on Bitcoin that we can both build a set of robust lightning implementations and also still have people working on Bitcoin Core. That these these two things can happen at once now, whereas that just wasn't true five years ago, six years ago. Like there just wasn't that level of investment in open source technologies around Bitcoin. So you know that's been great. You know, obviously the the Spiral team at Block has done a lot there as well. You know, we've given however many grants, many many grants now to to fund open source developers, but also you know the number of additional companies who've done that over the years now sadly it's a bear market so some of that's gotten cut but um there's still a lot more open source developer funding in bitcoin than there ever used to be so people will still want to build at higher levels to move faster but i think it's mostly a function of just developer funding and and that being available i know networking is another area that you're pretty interested in is there anything you're seeing on that front that you're excited about for bitcoin or lightning i know there are ideas being thrown around like uh, v2 peer-to-peer uh, or even like this AS map idea. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about uh, anything that you're excited there. Yeah, the AS map idea is pretty old and is focused. So there's nothing super exciting in the like. I think the encrypting the pure connections in Bitcoin Core finally <laughs> like should have happened forever ago. It project bounced around between different people who wanted to work on it and like whatever. It's finally shipping. I'm really happy about that. AS map. Similarly, I, I think it's technically been in bitcoin core but not on by default you have to actually download an as map which can potentially strongly improve bitcoin core's civil resistance um so ensuring that when you spin up a node either a new node or even an existing node making sure that you always have connectivity to enough of the network that things are are safe that you can uh, reliably get blocks and you can't be censored Important work, you know, it's important to keep ahead and keep making progress there. And AS Map's the next step, um, which is great, great to see. But 
you know, I don't think it's sad, like the, the old fiber network that I used to run kind of shut it down for a few reasons. You know, you, we don't have as many problems with the Great Firewall anymore. There's just not as much mining in China. So we don't see a lot of that big orphan rate that we saw because of that. Um, also, compact blocks improved that somewhat, but we just don't see as the same scale of problem. We, we did see a little bit of an increase in orphan rate when I did shut down the public fiber network, but it was challenging to maintain. Need some patches to go upstream in Bitcoin Core that never did. Uh, hopefully, they... They still can. I don't know. But we'll see. You know, I, I think the more exciting stuff in that vein is just on the Stratum V2 end. You know, uh, there's another big risk to Bitcoin, I guess. If if we don't manage to make mining materially decentralized, like, we're screwed. Like, we got to, we got to, you know, mining currently is fairly centralized at the pool level. You know, we now have... Yet again, another pool that's at, you know, whatever, 40% of hash power or something nuts. Mining needs to be decentralized. And, and luckily, you know, the observation with Stratum V2 is that it doesn't really matter whether you're trusting some entity to maintain the funds for a mining pool. What really matters kind of to the Bitcoin system is who selects the block templates and who selects what the previous block is. Um, and we can split those operations up now. You still want to make sure that the the mining pool operator doesn't just you know take your funds and drive you out of business because you're selecting your own blocks. And so maybe solutions like P2 pool, like people reviving P2 pool, would be nice. Um, but there's an area that I think developers can make a big impact. You know, the Stratum V2 project had some bear market loss in terms of funding um, and people having full time to work on it. But that's something that like desperately needs to ship. Um, if we want to ever have any hope of making Bitcoin as censorship resistant as I think we all want it to be, um, we absolutely have to have mining be way more decentralized than it is today. So there's something that, yeah, developers can have a big impact uh, working on that project. Yeah, and as I understand, even uh, the pool that you mentioned has a big uh, hash rate. Even they are supportive of Stratum V2. So, it's you know, it, it sounds like there are a lot of people supportive, but it, it, it still needs work and time um, to, to get it over the line, basically. Right, the code needs to be there for people to use. Um, and, and that is another big change in the last number of years is, like, mining pool operators today, like, they don't want to be in control anymore either. You know, we had... Things were a little different. Uh, Chinese mining pools had had a very different attitude. Just culturally, there wasn't very much interest in Bitcoin as a censorship-resistant platform. You know, there just isn't a lot of interest in that culturally in China, at least not within the community of people who operated mining pools, let's say. So it is refreshing that mining pools today are, like, looking at their hash power and saying, like, oh, my God, we don't want to have this much hash power, like... You know, we want to use something like Stratum V2. We want to somehow figure out a way to decentralize this. But yeah, that the software needs to exist. The software needs to be usable, uh, needs to ship. Um, and that's just taken longer than it should. But, you know, developers, you know, if, if someone has time and, and wants to, you know, contribute to the Bitcoin ecosystem, I'd say that's probably one of the highest leverage places to do it today by far. Um, it's, it's a project that doesn't have enough resources and would make a absolutely massive difference to the Bitcoin system. Right. And as I understand, Brains, obviously, the guys over at Brains and yourself were working together on that. And I know they support it on their pool. But the idea here is getting the software so that other pools and other mining 
uh, equipment could work with Stratum V2. Right. I believe they support using the SV2 protocol to do still do mining where the pool selects the block template. I don't think, again, because the software is just not there yet, I don't think they yet support the Stratum V2 mode where the client, the miner, selects the block gotcha. template and yeah. runs Bitcoin Core. Um, and that's really the, the thing that adds value to the Bitcoin system. It, it's not like Stratum V2 has other benefits. It is encrypted. It It is lighter weight. It's a binary format. So it, it uses less bandwidth, yada, yada. That, that's all great for miners and that matters for miners. But for the Bitcoin system, it's not all that critical. As far as like a user of Bitcoin, what I care about is that the people running Bitcoin Core to select the transactions that go in a block are as decentralized as possible. I don't really care too much about anything else. And sadly, I don't think Stratum V2, uh, sadly, I don't think Brains yet supports that using Stratum V2. And I don't think uh, the code for that to use Stratum V2 is is quite there yet either. Hey, as I understand, and I don't know the full details, I understand there is some change needed in Bitcoin Core, not a soft fork, but there's some, as you're saying, I think this is the code change right or one of them yeah well just a, a small patch i mean i yeah i don't think that's as much of the holdup i think i mean that that needs to happen um but it's just a small patch and, and people could run a patched version of bitcoin core it doesn't have a lot of uh change it, it, it's kind of attached to the side of bitcoin core it's not like it's rewriting internals yeah. of bitcoin core so it's not really a, a huge see. deal to to just run the patch the, the bigger concern is just getting the software robust and tested and you know people should should go try the software and, and give feedback. Um, but yeah, getting it tested and, and getting people to the point where they're comfortable putting their business on that software stack versus just it being like, yeah, you can maybe use it. It, it you know, is kind of alpha quality, maybe beta quality, but there's just more work to be done there. Also on the networking front, there are, you know, there's this idea of using alternative networks, obviously Tor network, and I see there are more people trying or playing around with I2P as an example. Is that something you're interested in, like alternative networks to connect your Bitcoin Core node or Bitcoin node? Yeah, I mean, I think there's right. There's the question of what you're trying to accomplish. So there's there's two different things that we have to separate here when people are using Tor and they're often conflated. There's censorship, and then there is privacy, right? And Tor was originally designed to provide privacy, right? So it's mostly focused on this multi-hop routing, yada, yada. And then they've also added a bunch of anti-censorship stuff on top, different pluggable transports. So, you know, if you're someone somewhere where you have internet, but the Bitcoin protocol is censored or maybe uh, access to certain LSPs and lightning are blocked, yada, yada, you care about censorship, but you're happy to use a VPN. You don't necessarily care about the privacy aspect of it you just want to be able to access it then there's you know you want to transact with bitcoin in a way that you know potentially your lsp or the person you're transacting with uh has to ban you know you're you're in iran and you want to pay someone uh on github or whatever and, and you can't do that because of u.s sanctions you know you just want to like donate money to someone uh, for writing open source software, but you can't do that. Or maybe you're in Iran and you want to receive, uh, money for running open source software and you, and you can't do that. So that would be somewhere where you want to add privacy. And so, you know, in, on the Bitcoin core front, you know, it, it's important. 
I, or I guess on the Bitcoin core front, there's a third reason. There's also civil resistance, right? So if unbeknownst to you, your internet being intercepted and all of the, your peers are actually connecting to one node, you can be civiled. And so using, you know, Bitcoin core traditionally, these other protocols have been used as a like fallback civil resistance. So, you know, ensuring that you have other ways to connect to peers than just the raw your direct internet connection um, can potentially give you some additional civil resistance. So, you know, we have to be careful to define exactly what we're trying to achieve with these things. So like with lightning, like why is your node on uh, Tor? Is it just for privacy? Is it for civil resistance? Probably not because you like have the public key for your peers. Is it, are you being, or do you have a censorship concern? Are you in China? Are you in Iran? Are you in Saudi Arabia, whatever, where you're worried about the internet uh, being censored in some way or another? So, you know, we have to define what it is and then and then people should pick the best solution to that. But I feel like we're just kind of throwing things at the wall often, or at least users are. We're just like, oh, Tor, I should enable this. Like, yeah, maybe, but like, what are you accomplishing something there? And then And then on the mobile front, too, you know, when we're talking about building out lightning apps for end users... Well, a, an important consideration there potentially is what happens if the internet you're on is censored and being able to access trustless financial services and uncensorable financial services if your internet is censored is, you know, we have to make sure that works. So having those things built in too and taking a page out of like Telegram or whatever, where they had years of the Russian government trying to censor Telegram and Telegram continually updating the apps and adding layers of, uh, you know, all kinds of fallback proxies and just, you know, tons and tons of, of proxies for people to access Telegram. Doing stuff like that in client apps for Lightning is something we should probably consider and, and should be building out. But Tor isn't necessarily going to solve that for us because Tor, its anti-censorship properties are, let's call it a little weak. They're just, there are, there has been a lot of effort put into making Tor censorship resistant so that you can get access to Tor if you're internet censored. But they're often quite manual. Uh, they often don't work super great. They're often super low bandwidth. They're not very reliable. So, you know, we have to, and, and that's been part of the reason people have looked at I2P, et cetera, but I don't think I2P necessarily has that much better censorship resistance. It's just more indifferent, which is also good, but not necessarily going to solve our problem if Bitcoin is specifically targeted. So there's a lot of work to be done there and and uh, especially on the censorship resistant front but maybe people would choose vpns and it won't matter interesting hey after all that let, you know maybe for some people they're just better off with a vpn <laughs> I, I also wanted to you know um chat a little bit about ldk is there anything in particular you know that you and the team are uh working on or um actually one other thing is you mentioned that there are more teams now looking at ldk right like if we went back a year or two it was kind of there weren't that many teams looking to put it into production. And now obviously, you know, Cash App has it. Um, and there are, I know other like wallets and other applications who are looking to use LDK now or are using LDK. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a few things. First of all, you know, LDK is designed to be super flexible and designed to have kind of a super pluggable architecture. That's really great, except that it requires a lot of plugging things in. Um, and so, you know, if you're a new developer, you get dropped on to, in front of the LDK API and it's like, okay, here's these piles of documentation about like plug this thing in in this way to your block source and plug this thing into your database and blah, blah, blah. It's just like a little overwhelming. Um, 
So I think that hampered us for a long, for a long while, uh, in terms of adoption that so over time, I think, you know, people want to build mobile lightning experiences and, and it's still the case that there's really kind of two options. If you want to build something on mobile lightning, you either use, uh, the Eclair. Eclair has a rewrite of Eclair in Kotlin that you can compile for iOS and Android, or you can use LDK, uh, and LDK is, or, you know, and then if you want to run like a node in your web browser, uh, your only option is LDK. So, you know, there's still, there's been folks who've kind of looked around and concluded that LDK is what they want, but that kind of just the raw amount of stuff you have to do to get it going. You know, I'm not going to say it's like complex. It's none of, none of it's really complex, but it's just a lot of stuff has slowed people down in terms of being able to ship. So, you know, that's been an issue. It's something we've improved. We've simplified the API a little bit, but more importantly, uh, we're working on this project currently called LDK node, but it's been renamed like five times, uh, which isn't necessarily a freestanding node. It, it might be at some point, but it is really just a kind of, let's say, default configuration of hooking all those things up. Th- this LDK node project will let people take something off the shelf and run it and have a working wallet. And then, you know, they can modify it as they see fit to kind of use the full light LDK API that allows you to have a lot more flexibility. Uh, but they can also take it and, and just kind of embed it and run it in their application without too much overhead. Um, and so we've already seen several people taking it. I mean, it's not even released yet and it's still kind of getting code review and like alpha, but people are already building on it because they're excited about it and they want uh, an easy to integrate lightning node basically uh but targeted mobile at, at least initially and then maybe elsewhere later so people have been kind of really running with that but also you know it's just as more time has passed people who you know otherwise wanted ldk have done the legwork to figure out the api and and start hooking all those different pieces up to to use ldk and we're starting to see some of that ship in alpha now, um, you know, obviously cash app shipped quite a while ago and there's a number of other projects that haven't shipped for various reasons. Um, and, but we're seeing a, a number of them kind of reach alpha beta stage at this point. Awesome. So yeah, I think, uh, we've spoken about a lot of different things, so probably a good spot to wrap up here. So, uh, do you have any closing thoughts for listeners based on, uh, all, all the stuff we've gotten into? I guess, uh, I guess the high, I guess the, at a high level, I'd summarize it like we spoke a little bit about what Bitcoin's specialization is. That's probably was one of the key themes, but I'm curious if you have any closing thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's really the, the important theme is like the, the recognition that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have specialized and that we should be excited about that. We should welcome that and we shouldn't, you know, spend our time. There's still a lot of people who just like argue about argue from start from a point of view of like Bitcoin and Ethereum are in competition and we need to beat Ethereum versus saying like Bitcoin is specialized. It does this thing and Ethereum is specialized. That it does this thing. And maybe I think that thing's not very interesting and like it's kind of dumb, but like it, it, it does this thing and it's completely different and like making sure we argue from those points of view and making sure we focus on it in that way, I think would improve a lot of debate and, and continue to improve this kind of healthy trend. And then also just, you know, Bitcoin is finding the best way to, 
compete in an open marketplace given that and finding the best way to how do we best communicate the differences between stablecoins and Bitcoin and how do we best compete with stablecoins and add, you know, I guess we don't really care if we like win the competition, but like add value to users to users' lives and like really make a difference and and provide something that people want to use uh, in access from stablecoins is something that I think the community needs to do a little more soul searching on. Fantastic. Well, uh, thanks, Matt. It was uh, educational for me and uh, enjoyed chatting. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching or listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, make sure to hit like and share it with your family and friends and get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 461. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels.